Welcome back to the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato with my co-host Scott Bernstein. There he is. And uh, we're, uh, b- before we get started, I just want to remind everyone to uh, uh, check out our page on Facebook and on Twitter and, and sign up and like us and all of that. That helps support the show. Uh, we're really excited. Today we have a uh, special guest, uh, a special agent actually, uh, FBI agent, former FBI agent. Elaine Smith, who is also the author of A Gun in My Gucci. So uh, great, great, great title, by the way, Elaine. That- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank I, you. Agree. I agree. So um, she's going to tell us about her career and also uh, especially her uh, investigations into the outfit in Chicago. So we're pretty excited about this. We really haven't had an outfit episode yet. We've talked about Al Capone a few times in different contexts, but uh, this is the first time we've, we're going to do a deep dive into the into organized crime in Chicago. So we're pretty excited about this. And um, Elaine is also, I mean, really a, a pioneer in, in federal law enforcement. Um, back then, uh, I don't think there were very many women investigating organized crime in, in, in um, the FBI and other federal agencies. So it's a real honor to have her on this uh, episode. So, um, Elaine, you want to um, uh, just introduce yourself and, and tell us about how you got involved in the FBI and uh, your early career before we get into your investigations of, of Chicago? Um, well, I think the most determinant point of my life was that I grew up in Chicago and I really like grew up with the mob. I, re- I read the newspapers every day and it was like every other day there was a body found in a trunk. And for some twisted reason, uh, as a child, I thought that was fascinating. Um, I found it was interesting. And um, I married my high school sweetheart, who um, became a Big Ten football player. And then was later, after we had graduated in graduate school, he was recruited by the FBI. And then he recruited me because there weren't very many women. And he said, you know, You've been teaching school. You've gotten your master's degree. I think that you really make a good agent. And it was like an incredible uh, support and um, vote in my favor. And I said, well, you think I really could do it? And um, he said, yeah, if you start working out. (laughs) And um, I said, well, who needs to work out? You know, I I was very lucky to not gain weight, but I also smoked. Uh, and so I did start working out. And the more I worked out, the more confidence it gave me that perhaps I could carry a gun. Perhaps I could sort of hold my own on the street. And so then began the long process of beca- trying and, you know, interviewing and whatnot to go into the FBI. So w- when you were um, growing up in Chicago, uh, who were some of the big outfit names that you were um, familiar with. I, I mean, I think our audience probably knows that, that the Chicago crime family, people refer to it as the outfit. We're talking about the, the mafia there. Um, wh- who are some of the big names that you were familiar with uh, growing up? From the, from I the think people? growing up, I only knew the name Tony Ocardo. I ah. really didn't know uh, anything else. I don't really recall any other mm-hmm. specific names. Um, it wasn't until um, later and when I started reading the newspapers in more detail, and then, of course, when I became an agent, 
um, that I, I I could recite the entire family's name and knew who, who was made. And uh, I just can't, kind of made it um, my little graduate study. So would you, would, Elaine, would you say that, you know, when you were growing up that the outfit was, was you know, daily front page news in Chicago and, and someone like a Tony Accardo, you know, all, is this larger than life, uh, you know, kind of this wizard of Oz of the underworld, uh, you know, puppeteering literally thousands of, of men on the street it has a reach that goes well beyond the borders of Illinois. Um, kind of talk about your perception of him from reading about him in the headlines. And then when you actually become a agent and you're, you know, tasked with actually learning about Accardo and some of Accardo's main lieutenants, uh, you know, uh, for your, for your livelihood. How did, the, how did, how did you reconcile that? How, how did, the, how do they compare? Um, I didn't know how truly evil they were. Uh, I thought that they were, I glamorized them a li little bit. Uh, Tony Accardo lived in this big fancy house in the River Forest and uh, had money. Um, the gruesome part showed up when um, they would discover bodies, and that would always be a front page um, headline. They would have very gruesome stories. Um, I also learned further about it when I became, well, maybe when I went to school, college, and we would try to drink illegally and go to Rush Street, which was, I knew, controlled by the mob. And that was where you could go to these, like, uh, nightclubs or places where you could dance and drink beer for 50 cents. Um, and I learned that that was controlled by the mob. And then I did learn um, through people that I met that the police were paid and that it was all... It was all a very sweet deal for the outfit, the Chicago outfit, and it dovetailed with with the with the big Chicago political machine too. I mean, it wasn't oh, just protection in the police department; they were getting protection from you know the political realm in that area too. Right at that point, I didn't realize the political depth of influence that they had. But it wasn't until I really actually came in age, and I think that I really realized the political because it took us a while in the FBI to even get into the political part. So uh, Elaine just referenced uh, Rush Street, and uh, anyone that's familiar with Chicago knows that you know Rush Street's the, and, and, sh and she touched on it is like the premier downtown entertainment district. It's where you go, where if you want to hit the clubs, hit the bars, get a nice uh, get a nice steak dinner at Gibson's and whatnot. Um, but that was also you know ground zero, the epicenter of activity for the Chicago's North Side crew. And that's what we're going to kind of get into with Elaine. That's the crew that I think she was assigned to and, and worked uh, on a daily basis. Northside crew doesn't exist anymore. Um, it disbanded in the late 90s, early 2000s, and was folded in to the Grand Avenue crew, the West, the West Side mm -hmm. crew. But at one point, um, I know Elaine knows this already. I'm not telling this to Elaine. I'm telling this to the, to the, to the audience. Uh, at one point, um, the Northside crew uh, had, had a ton of power, controlled all of that uh, uh, entertainment district, uh, all the way up north to uh, a lot of uh, suburbs that had a lot of uh, Jewish bookies present that, that were um, making a lot of money, booking bets and, and paying up to the mob, guys like Lenny Patrick and, and Gus, Ale uh, Gus Alex. But uh, the Northside crew at that time was run by two guys 
uh, uh, Vincent Innocent Vince Solano and his right hand man uh, Joe Caesar DeVarco. Uh, so Solano was kind of the the the, the final the, the final shot caller, but I don't think he was on uh, on Rust Street on a day to day basis like oh, Joe no. Caesar, like Joe Caesar DeVarco was. T- talk a little bit about Joe Caesar. Well, <clears throat> we would do surveillances on Joe Caesar DeVarco because the one of my partners uh, had the case on him. And um, they assigned me as a rookie, uh, lucky me, find a lookout spot uh, on Rush Street so we can watch Caesar go into this little drugstore that he used to run called Odds and Ends. And um, I, I just decided to walk into the railroad retirement building, which had a high rise that overlooked all of Rush Street. It was just like a beautiful bird's eye view. And they were really shocked to see an FBI agent and really kind of when I took them into our secret as to what we were surveilling, the mob or something like that, they were just thrilled to be able to give me an office with a big bank of windows directly overlooking Caesar DeBarco from wherever he parked, walking to wherever he went for his meetings and numerous other people. I got, so I sat in the window and I took pictures and I watched with, you know, my my glasses, and I could recognize people from their walk. I could recognize them from their stupid jackets that he wore, the sands about pants they wore. I, I mean, I studied them physically from these windows. And then later on uh, in our wiretaps, we learned, you learn a significant amount of people by listening to their phone calls. I, I want to uh, jump in here for a moment, um, talking about your, your early investigations. It's something in your book that I think is really, uh, it, it's really humorous, I think, is you were talking about some of the um, undercover operations and that the, the, some of the undercover operations, they didn't really appreciate uh, the culture of Cosa Nostra or Mafia and that some of the undercover agents felt like to blend in, they had, this is the seventies that they had to dress like John Travolta from Saturday night fever. Absolutely. Absolutely. The gold chains, the shirts opened it. And I thought, Oh, those guys are so cool. And they looked like nothing that I was looking at that was walking down the street. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's easier to spot than, than they wanted to be. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They stood out like a sore thumb. They thought they were blending in, but (laughs) But I just think that's funny that these guys think that that mob guys dress like uh, what was the character's name in Saturday Night Fever? Danny Tony, uh, or Tony Monero. Tony Monero. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, yeah, go ahead. Let me ask a question real quick. Sure, With Elaine, sure. um, I, I didn't start going to Chicago until the '90s. So, but you know, I'm, I'm me and Jimmy are you know grew up in the '90s, so we don't have the reference point of you know the the, the outfits golden era, which you were. Uh, right in right in the, Which middle were in the of, 60s 70s right, 80s 60s, yeah. 70s but so when you started in the late 70s early 80s was from what i can uh from my research rust street was a little seedier than it is now yeah it was always kind of seedy actually i i graduated from college in 1967 so i'm pretty pretty old uh and so we started in the early 60s going down there um and it was sort of seedy. I mean, one or two blocks off these uh, nightclub areas uh, were really junky. We're really kind of scary. Uh, there were a few spots that weren't. Today, it's still a big hangout for the for the wise guys, and you know, uh, it's a little more uh, ritzier, a little glitzier. You know, they call Absolutely. it the, they call it the uh, 
uh, the Viagra Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, a lot of a lot of old time uh, yeah. uh, mob guys going down there trying to score with uh, young young yes, women. Yes, yes, yes. Well, prostitution so, uh, was a big th big money maker. Yeah, and and, and, and the North Side controlled uh, pornography as well, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mikey Glitta and uh, oh, guys yeah, over on, on uh, in old, in Old Town. Yes. Yes. Which was um, which is another neighborhood that, yes. that was within the North North Side Cruise purview. Right. 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 So let, let's uh, transition into kind of the the crown jewel uh, of your uh, uh, career as a as a G woman. Mm -hmm. um, so you know when people know the outfit uh, outside of made guys, when you say Tokyo Joe or or Kenny Ito, uh, everyone knows who you're talking about. His reputation uh, really preceded him. Uh, he's the most powerful uh, Asian organized crime figure in Chicago history, uh, made a ton of money for his bosses in the outfit, uh, starting in the, the 1950s, I believe, and mm -hmm. uh, reigned supreme uh, over areas that were, um, I believe, crossed boundaries. I mean, he was a North Side guy, but he also had interests on the South Side. He had interests in Chicago Heights uh, in Northwest Indiana. Um, he had interests, I believe, in other parts of the country in, in, in gambling and, and bookmaking. So this guy was a real moneymaker. Uh, and at some point, the outfit decides that uh, he might flip, he might turn on them, and uh, they try to kill him. This is in 1983, and they fail. They put uh, two or three bullets in the back of his head, but uh, uh, he survives it. And uh, talk about how you convinced uh, Tokyo Joe uh, to, to, to turn FBI informant. And that was such a, a groundbreaking event in, in the FBI's war on organized crime in Chicago. And you were a major, major factor in that. Can you just kind of talk about, talk about that situation? Well, it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, hello, thank you, ma'am. Bang, you're gone. Uh, I, I kind of like bothered him. Uh, I would kind of like watch him. And when he'd come out of his apartment, I'd like walk up to him and tell him who I was. And would you, I, you know, would you consider talking to me? Can I take you out for coffee? Can I take, you know, and I approached him several times and he always said, no, he was always very respectful and very nice. Well, then I got a case uh, on him for the gambling and out of nowhere comes this remarkable informant that puts us right in the middle of his gambling operation, which was Belita. And what Joe specialized was were gambling games that appealed to minorities. And so he was into the Puerto Rican lottery and was taking a lot of book on that. I mean, headquarters figured from the records I got $10,000 a week in wagers. Um, and going to Indiana, and that was very sweet because we got him going across state lines. But um, so Vince, we indict him, and Vince Solano um, takes him for a walk, the old walk and talk. And he says, uh, well, I'm worried about this indictment. And Joe says to him, well, I'm not worried about it. I'll get 18 months at the worst, most. And he was really right. He would have gotten 18 months. Interstate gambling and a couple of counts wouldn't have really been much time in the jail. In jail. Uh, so he says, I can do that standing on my head. Well, Vince didn't believe him. And Vince, I think, was convinced at that point, Joe's got to go. 
And uh, that's when he contracted to these two guys that were part of his crew, sort of tangentially, um, to shoot him. And um, they set him up to go for dinner with the boss, which was Vince. And Joe, in all of his 30 years of association, had never been invited by a boss to have dinner. This was, you didn't sit down and have spaghetti with these people. You just didn't. And he immediately knew something was off. And he took a bath, not a shower, put on his good clothes, and he decided that he was just going to go and see what happened. And he said, my odds were, you know, I gave myself 50-50. He says, you know, I'm a betting man. Oh, I wouldn't have given 50-50. But he went to the meeting. And the two guys that got in the car to take him to drive to Vincelano, that's when they asked him to pull over. And that's when they pulled the trigger and shot him three times in the head. Bang, 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 he said. And he hears the shots. He feels them in the back of his head. And he says, well, I'm not dying. <laughs> I'm not dying. So I'm going to pretend I'm dying. And he says, I quivered like a chicken dying, which is kind of disgusting but anyway he falls over on the car seat and the two mobsters are thrilled they've done the job they don't have the brains blowing all over them and they jump out of the car and run away he you know is mulling on the seat front seat of his car saying i'm not dying i you know don't feel anything so gets out of the car and walks half a block to this pharmacy that was open and stumbles in and says, I've been shot in the head, call the police. Then proceeds the funniest conversation anybody can have on the phone when they say, call the police, call 911. The pharmacist starts to argue with him. Like, why should I call the police? What do you mean you've been shot in the head? I mean, he starts arguing with how could you be shot in the head and you walk into the pharmacy here? He puts him on hold and calls 911, and 911 puts him on hold. I mean, so now we got who talk, two hold, pharmacy and 911. And in the background, they recorded 911, and they, you record their conversation about some inane subject while this guy is standing in the pharmacy, bleeding profusely from his head. Well, uh, it comes to end, the ambulance drives and they drives and picks him up and you know, gunshot wound and they bundle him off. And there's a, you know how these things go that they don't immediately close the doors to the ambulance. And he says to one of the ambulance guys, would you please close the door? I'm afraid they're going to come back and finish me off. Because <laughs> they had left the ambulance doors open. Well, the two shooters really weren't anywhere around. So he didn't worry about that. And they take him to the hospital, and he says to himself, man, I've got no choice. Either I go back to them, and they really do me, they're really good this time, and they get me, and I die. Or maybe I'll call Elaine Smith. As remarkable as that sounds, that was exactly what he did. The cops are there. There's a commando, commander at the his bedside and the commander says, ah, will you tell us who shot you? And he'll say, he said, no, I want to talk to Elaine Smith. And the commander says, who the fuck is Elaine Smith? 
<laughs> I was a rookie FBI agent. I was 18 months on the job. I was no one. And I was in Vail skiing. <laughs> so uh, they call me. They go hysterical and they call. They're getting Lane Smith, getting Lane Smith. Well, oh, Elaine Smith's in Vail skiing. And they get a hold of me and wake me up in the middle of the night and I say, I'm there tomorrow on the first plane. The sky's mine because I know this is an enormous break for the FBI and the mob. And for you, you're like, you know, to use a, a term from the underworld, you're making your bones on this. Oh, yeah. This was this was like shocking. And I was really determined that they weren't going to take away to take this away and give it to somebody who had a lot more experience and really who had already made their bones. So it was shocking that they said, hands off, she's got it. So I waited. I finished my vacation and because they said, it's going to be yours. There'll be plenty to do. And so then I went back. And 17 years, uh, Joe cooperated and was in the witness protection program. And I was a friend of his until he died at 86. Let me. I want to jump in for a moment, um, just to, to back up with uh, some some context here about um, uh, Joe Ito. So, um, I think that Chicago, the outfit, is similar to uh, the Detroit organization here in that it's not uncommon to see non-Italians who uh, play a significant role in the underworld. Um, so they're not made guys, but um, but they're nevertheless heavyweights um, and uh, work with the Italians rather well. So um, it's it's not extraordinary to see a non-Italian uh, accumulating so much power in Chicago, but it is pretty remarkable to see a Japanese American. Uh, I think I mean he's one of the few I can think of, the only one I can think of who really uh, is, is a major force in the, in, in Cosa Nostra, in a, in a Cosa Nostra organization. Can you give us a little bit of background on, on, on so-called Tokyo Joe? I mean, what, what, what's his story? How does he get involved with, with Italian mafia guys, a Japanese guy of all people? Yes. Um, he gets involved with it because he's a gambler. And he ran away from home when he was 13 out in California. His parents were immigrants, Japanese immigrants. And he ran away from home. And in order to survive, he hopped on trains. He rode trains. And in riding trains, he learned how to gamble. And what he discovered was he had, like, almost total recall. The guy could remember cards. And so he decided, well, geez, this seems like pretty easy money. Because I can remember all the hands I deal, and I can do this to make money. And that was really how he started out, by riding the trains and gambling and having, like, almost, you know, a photographic memory. He was incredible who, to debrief. Who brought him into the outfit? Like what, what, it was an Northside side crew. Um, did he, he come in through Solano and DeBarco? Like they, yeah, they yes, yes, yes. Him? Well, Rocky and Felice and Vince Solano and um, they were all like guards. They were like soldiers at that time. And he used to hold some pretty big state gambling games. And so they would just hang around and extend juice loans on behalf of the other bosses. Uh, and so that's how he became friendly with all of them and then just stayed into gambling and you know they had the fix with the police so he had like this spotless record he was like arrested once never convicted really of anything 
and his rap sheet was like a joke. It was almost non-existent. And so he just um, moved above uh, any kind of law enforcement until really, actually, until I got my case and got really that's, lucky. That's why they called uh, Vince Solano Innocent Vince. He kept yeah. on skating on all these cases. That he, he, had did. No skating on. he did. He did. He <laughs> did. Yeah. You think, do you think that Solano would have had to get an okay from a cardo to kill Tokyo Joe? Yeah, I think so. I think a car for hits. I think a Carter was consulted. Yeah. Cesar DeMarco for sure had to approve it. Vince had to approve it. And I'm sure they went up to a Cardo. Who was under a Cardo? I can't remember under. At that time, it would have been uh, Joey Ayupa and Jackie Cerrone. Oh, okay. Um, well, Jackie was alive at that time, I believe, and so was Ayupa. Yeah. Um, so I think they both would have been. You know, I think it goes all the way up, and everybody gets checked off. It's like, okay, with this guy, is going to hurt his business. Is this going to do something? Because it was, bottom line, money. Money, money, money. If you were a money maker, hey, I'll be your friend. So what's, what was the um, – Scott's more familiar with the outfit than I am. So what, what was the exact chain of command at that point? Solano's a captain. Accardo is the boss. And then, and then who does Solano report to? Who is this Soto Capo, the, un, the underboss at the time? Is that Ayupa? What yes, was I think it was Ayupa. Okay. Or, and, or Cerrone. They were part of, sort it, of equal. It was okay. like they would have – Jimmy, they, they had like street bosses. So Accardo was the final word. But on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis, Joe Ayupa and Jack Cerrone were running the street. And then just like, you know, at a smaller degree on the north side, Vince Solano was like the Accardo of the north side and Cesar DeVarco ran the street on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. Um, thank you. Um, I want to ask about the, um, the uh, environment there before we get back to the specific specifics of Tokyo Joe uh, testifying. You mentioned that the Chicago PD, um, that they were in cahoots with the wise guys and they were protecting, at least some, at least some Chicago PD members were protecting these wise guys. Uh, what, was, what was the FBI's attitude about that? Did, did the Chicago PD, were they hostile toward you? All feds investigating on their territory, were they defensive? I mean, what was that dynamic like, the politics of that dynamic? Um, it... It was always tense, and it was um, vice unit was always in the pocket of the mob. Um, mm. So there were very few cases that we could ever, well, we really never, ever worked jointly on mob cases until way, way 20 years later uh, because the FBI just never trusted him. And then, as be told, uh, our investigations into fixing the courts in, in Cook County showed that all of the cases were like never prosecuted. The fix was in. Um, oh, we lost her for a second. Hmm. This is good. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, there you are. We lost you for a moment. That's okay. how we can edit that. Yeah. You were talking about the, how the courts were fixed. Yes, uh, we had an undercover case called Greylord, and they they 
had a state's attorney, assistant state's attorney that went undercover, in fact, three of them that went undercover as state's attorneys and became known as fixers and hooked up with informants that the, the Bureau had developed and went and fixed cases. And I think there were like 20 Cook County judges that were convicted of uh, bribery for fixing cases in Cook County. Well, so if you know that the case is never really going to be prosecuted, that you're never going to go to jail for this, I mean, you, you do business with abandon. You control it. You're gonna, you can arrest me all you want, but I'm never going to go to jail. And that really was it. I believe it. Extraordinary. Uh, uh, Elaine, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I believe that they had a, uh, an alderman in, in the downtown area that was a made guy. Pat Marcy. Yeah. Yes. Pat I mean, Marcy. That's, that's like the equivalent of, you know, in Detroit, having a Detroit city councilman that happens to be a, 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 a butt man on the Cosa Nostra. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, they got Pat Marcy by wiring a booth that he would meet people with at the same restaurant in the morning have coffee and so they had a wire that when you sat on the booth it started recovering cover recording recording it was quite amazing would you say like this is kind of more uh talking about undercover not undercover work, but uh talking about law, law enforcement's um war on, on organized crime or or any high level target i mean people are creatures of habit so yes. even though you would think certain behavior um, would would lend itself to kind of undermine your ultimate goal of not getting arrested. Sometimes just human nature makes it so you're going to the same restaurant every day. You're sitting in the same booth. You're doing your walk and talks under the same lamp that they can uh, bug. Or you're you doing it. your yeah. So exactly just, yeah. Creatures Talk about of how habit. these guys are. How these guys are human. Yes, they're human. They're creatures of habit. Um, it takes a lot of discipline to switch up places that you meet, to switch up phones that you use, never to use your phone at home. Uh, I can't tell you how many wiretaps I was on as a listener. Don't talk on the phone. And then two minutes later, they'd start talking about criminal activity. <laughs> so it was, it was very difficult to keep discipline. And so they, um, were any of the Italian wise guys, you said that Joe was, he knew who you were and he confides in you. Did any of the, uh, Italian wise guys know who you were specifically? Did they know that you were working that territory? Yeah. Ben Solano called me the blonde bitch. I saw that blonde bitch the other day, you know, and I wasn't anywhere around. <laughs> so, so they were familiar so, that you, who you were. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were familiar, but that really came years after, you know, I think uh, things hit, should hit the fan, so to speak. So was, was uh, uh, Tokyo Joe, um, was he one of the most, an early example of one of the more significant outfit associates to flip at that point? I mean, talk to us about the significance of that. You know, um, uh, the Rosetta Stone, is the Rosetta Stone the translation of the Bible? I mean, it, it was put on down on tablets or something. And, and I called him the Rosetta Stone of the Chicago mob because he had this 
incredible memory. And we had all these pictures and all these thoughts that this guy's a member and this guy's an associate. And he went through, I think it was like 70 names I just saw that he identified and sort of told us who he was with and what kind of racket he ran. You know, you weren't an associate unless you brought in money. No one, very few were just hanging around to do an occasional hit. <laughs> I mean, it was watershed uh, getting Tokyo Joe to cooperate. I don't, I think you can say very firmly that there would be no Nick Calabrese, there would be no Operation Family Secrets if yes. that Pandora's box hadn't been opened 20 years, 25 years before that. Uh, by by the flipping of, of Tokyo Joe Ito, because as we've said, you know, it, it, during this podcast, he might not have been Italian, but in terms of money makers, in terms of influence on the street, um, you know, he was on par with a number of made guys, and and I would say probably held more influence and power than a handful of made guys as well. That that's uh, how high up uh, in the pecking order Tokyo Joe was. I think you're right on. And I think that Vince made a terrible mistake to misread him, that to think that he would ever not be able to go to jail and, you know, keep his mouth shut. Um, and, you know, it was just a gift to law enforcement, if you want to return that, that Joe wasn't killed. He became a wonderful witness and uh, was a witness in some significant um, cases. In fact, the guy, the case agent of Family Secrets, that took down really the hierarchy of the mob in Chicago, um, told me the case could not have been made without him, without his yep. information. He told me the same thing when I was researching uh, my uh, family affair book. Uh, yeah. those, okay. those guys were great. Um, uh, Tom Bourgeois. And, yes, Tom Bourgeois. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, just a lot of, a, a lot of great law enforcement work uh, was put in um, to, to, to really build a case in, in family secrets that, you know, took, you know, was able to, 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 to finally put to bed 18 mob murders dating back yes, 30 years. It was years. a compilation of everything that the Bureau had yes. done since like the 60s. And it just built um, and built and built. Calabrese was an incredible clip. <laughs> but I, I think we should put into context, and I just want to reemphasize it. I know we just said it, but. When when Elaine flipped Tokyo Joe in 1983, people were cooperating. I mean, now everybody cooperates. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. In the late 80s, early 90s, a, a, a kind of the floodgates opened um, when a couple of you know real high ranking guys across the country, Sammy the Bull in New York, Crazy Phil Leonetti uh, in Philadelphia. I'll go read my book, <laughs> Mafia Prince on Phil Leonetti. Uh, I'll give myself a little plug. But, you know, when those guys did it, the floodgates opened. But at the time that you were able to, to convince uh, Ito to cooperate in 1983, I, I mean, there had been very, very few um, organized crime figures across the country at, at that level of, of power, influence, and knowledge that had ever decided to start working with the government. And, and I just think we lose context when we're we're so removed from it and we get desensitized because there there is so much cooperation now. But back then it, it was the exception, not the rule. I agree with you. But if I say that, you know, kind of like polishes my star. So I, you know, oh, try okay. to, to say yeah. off on that. 
because it was an incredible flip. He was an incredible flip. So who were the guys that in the in the initial cooperation phase there, who were the who were the big guys that you were able to indict? Was it Solano? Who were the who were the major yeah. guys you took down? No, Vin Solano escaped entire life, never was prosecuted. Okay. Um, you know, I, I can't remember all their names. It was just, they were just so many of them. Um, Kansas City was a tremendous um, case that five or six of the mob guys went down for skim money coming out of Las Vegas. Do you know how oh. important that is? That Chicago right. controlled Las Vegas. Control, Chicago was getting a monthly cut a monthly envelope, and I mean a bag, just about, about a bag, because we surveilled them. It was just a horrible thing. Um, coming from Vegas when they made the pickup and flying into Chicago, and they had some 80-year-old guy doing it, and he didn't know how to drive, and he would get lost, and it was just a nightmare. He would go 50 miles an hour on the expressway. We'll try to follow someone going 50 miles in the right-hand lane. It, it was, but it was, we had to find the bag that he carried from Vegas to Chicago. So at that point, were you familiar with Tony Spilatro? You knew he was on your radar as a federal agent at that point? Oh, yes, yes. See, we, we, he was a bad dude. We knew he was a bad dude. Um, and, but then we did find out. I, I, I was on a wiretap or a, a surveillance tap, too, of a guy that, George Erkman, that was, on the payroll of uh, Tony Spilatro, he would fence a lot of his jewelry through through him. And that was sort of interesting because it was both sound and video uh, watching, you know, these people would come in with this jewelry to fence. And, I know in, uh, in, your book, in your book, you talked about uh, Tony Spilatro's right-hand man in Vegas, Fat Herbie Blitzstein. Oh, yeah. A Jewish organized crime figure yes. that rose to some prominence uh, attaching his uh, trailer to the Tony Spilatro star. Can you kind of talk about Spilatro and Blitzstein and kind of the colorful characters that uh, that Vegas crew was? Well, they were just, they were just jerks. Um, Spilatro really screwed, the, screwed it up out there. Um, apparently he was very undisciplined and, uh, I don't know the real story about Spilatro, but he really pissed someone off <laughs> and did, they did him away. Uh, Herbie Blitzstein, he was murdered too, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he was murdered yeah. uh, actually like 10 years after Spilatro yeah. Shotgun. Uh, living in Vegas. Yeah. He, they shotgunned him. I mean, it was like Blitzstein all over the car. So, uh, but Herbie was just this big, fumbling, fumbling fat dude that was uh, just trying to fence stolen jewelry. <laughs> he had big mutton chop sideburns and wear yes, really did. loud, garish clothes. Yes, yes. Were you, yes, were you familiar with was, uh, Lefty Rosenthal on your um, uh, radar? He was the, the other you know, main guy from the movie Casino. We think about him and Tony Spilatro. Um. Uh, Joe talked to me a lot about Lefty. He said he was really bright. He said that um, he was considered really one of the founders of the the money coming out of the Vegas. It wasn't for him. Chicago would not have gotten their cut out of Vegas. Lefty Rosenthal was very uh, impressive to Joe. Um, I had met him a couple of times, but really had, other than that, no dealings with him. He just knew he was super connected. 
at the end of his life, it came out that he had been an FBI informant. He was I a never CI. heard that. Yeah, I he never heard that. Yep. No one ever bragged about it in the squad area, so I don't know. That's that's in, that's interesting that that was that quiet, you know. That nobody had nobody knew that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was very quiet, and I think that you know I was tuned into the outfit for a long time. Uh, uh, I was very close to the attorneys, prosecutors, and the strike force, uh, strike force, and uh, so I and I never heard any of that. Well, I, I'll tell you that the, there was one kind of clear sign uh, when you look back at it retrospectively, playing Monday morning quarterback was that Lefty Rosenthal wasn't indicted in any of those cases. You're right. You're right. <laughs> yes. His any of those Vegas cases, he, yeah. he seemed to, to, to be able to sneak away from. But, uh, so, so uh, bringing it back to Chicago for, yeah, thank you. Uh, bringing it back to um, Chicago for a moment. Um, let's talk about what happens to the, the shooters, the guys who try to, we'll back it up to the guys that unsuccessfully uh, go after Tokyo Joe. Uh, they shoot him in the head a few times. Remarkably, Joe survives. You turn him into an informant. What happens to the uh, would-be assassins? Can you talk to us about, about that, Elaine? So we figure that they're dead. So we run up to them. We, talk, we go to them. We go to their houses. We go, go to wherever. They, we follow them and then stop them. I mean, maybe three, four times we approach them and say, we know you're dead. Come cooperate. Let us grab you off the street. And, you know, and they never, ever would cooperate. In fact, um, one of their wives threw an agent down the steps or pushed him down the steps um, to tell him to get out, you know, out of his house, out of her house or out of the front porch. And um, so it was just impossible. And when we found their bodies, uh, they had been stabbed and shot and one had his underpants around his ankles, which to me is, you know, like a total disrespect. And they tell me, you go, you go to um, Campisi's house and tell his wife, wife that he, we found him in a trunk. And so I say, why me? <laughs> why do you want me to go? I, you know, you're a woman. You know, they'll take it better from you. Well, that was really not the right thing because they thought I was a bitch from hell and they wouldn't have told me anything. Um, but when I got there, they already knew. They, his wife and his daughter already knew we had found him in the trunk. So the, the two guys' knew. names, the two guys Ralph, names were John Jay Campisi. Yeah, Jay yeah. Campisi, originally from Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City outfits on to Chicago. Uh, and because the Las Vegas skim was really engineered by the Kansas City guys originally. And so Campisi was in Chicago and Catuso and both of them. And Catuso screwed up the shoot shot because he had the wrong angle on Joe's head. Johnny Catuso was a former uh, Chicago police, to, uh, police officer, I believe. Uh, Cook County Sheriff. But really, it was sort of an honorary badge. I never found that he was ever got was employed in the courts or did much of anything. It was an honorary thing. And from what I've read, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the reasons they were able to shoot him three times in the head and not kill him was because they had uh, loaded the gun themselves and didn't put enough gunpowder in there. And they had lo loaded the rounds themselves. Uh, 
or from someone and they were corroded or old and the gunpowder wasn't so powerful. And so they just skimmed Otto's head, just sub, you know, dermally, just under the skin and around and out and never pierced the skull. So it was the angle and the bullets that were bad. So that's why they were they were killed because they um, it, it, they botched the hit and that was unacceptable to probably Accardo and and the the, the hierarchy right uh, and Solano they were horrified. Now not only do we got Joe the Champ out there running around, now we're going to have these two idiots. They got to go. They got to go. <laughs> and, I guess- and, and they wouldn't believe us. They wouldn't. They thought they were. I don't know. Someone must have told. I mean, maybe Ricardo called him and said, "You're fine. I'll, I'll cover you." <laughs> yeah. There's an there's an anecdote out there that I think Gattuso, uh told someone. I'm not worried about getting killed. They don't do that anymore. Oh then, yeah, no, I I never heard like, that one, but that's a good like, one. Like oh, two weeks later, he's trunk music. Yeah, I don't think he was the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, though. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah. But you know, and we can you know make a a, a quick connection when we're talking about getting uh, killed uh, for botching assignments. Uh, fast forward to 1986, Tony Spilatro was murdered uh, and his brother. Uh, for, mm-hmm. for causing all the chaos in uh, Las Vegas. Yes. And his burial is put, uh, is, is his, the, 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 the crew that was responsible for Tony Spilatro's burial was the Chicago Heights crew. And Albert Toko and a couple of his guys were supposed to be reporting to Big John uh, uh, Farrakhata uh, over uh-huh. at uh, Fecarada, over at uh, uh, in the Southside crew, and they did such a poor job of it that they found this Flatro's body in a matter of a, a couple days, and they wanted to take vengeance not on the actual crew that had screwed up the burial, but the person that had been in charge of putting that crew together, which was Farrakhata, and. Uh, they go to kill him, and in the middle of killing him, Nick Calabrese drops his bloody glove, and 20 years oh, later, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, it's coming back to me. Yes, they're yes. able to make the, the, the family secrets case. But the reason yes. that they went in to kill uh, Big John was because he had botched the Spilatro's burial. Yeah, oh, I didn't, I didn't really know that, so that's interesting to learn. It sounds like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. This, these two, these two examples. Yeah, you would think, and and everybody, you know, the the Chicago outfit was pretty powerful. I mean, they could have kicked Detroit's ass for sure. I mean, they were they were big time. Uh, the yeah. only one that really would have challenged them is any of the Genovese or whatever from New York, but Chicago was very heavy. Sure. Yeah. But were you um, speaking of Detroit? We're obviously we're you know we record from Detroit. Um, in your investigations, did you come across any of the connections between the Chicago guys and, and other crime families like Detroit or other? I mean, how much how much interaction was you mentioned Kansas City? How much interaction was was there between the outfit and other organizations across the country? Um, they all had sort of connections um, tangentially. Um, yes, um, so Vegas comes in because of the Kansas City. Uh, influence, and I'm not quite sure 
why Kansas City had an end to Vegas. Um, and the, the golden jewel on the crown uh, for Detroit or anybody else, including Chicago, were the unions. Uh, and so they were connected because the unions were in all of those cities and very big in those cities. Um, Vince Solano himself was president of the UAW laborers or something like that. Um, labor has pay, played a huge part in the outfit and did. What, uh, what, what was Kenito's final years like uh, in witness protection? I think he was living in Georgia. Oh, that was, that was way in the beginning. Um, he bounced around a little bit. Um, and so he goes in the witness protection program and it isn't, it isn't um, like you, you have, you know how to get a job. If you've been a gambler and a mobster your whole life, you are not going to go out and uh, assume some professional identity, right? And so these people have trouble because they've never really worked in their lives. And um, Joe ended up bouncing around um, and marrying or getting with women who would steal his money. I mean, it was it was sort of pitiful. So going in the Windows Protection Program was not easy for them. Him, I was able to get him a very large lump sum. And as soon as I submitted my write-up or justification, it came back from the bureau in three days. And I thought, shit, I hadn't asked for enough. I should have I should have asked for a lot more than I did because it would have taken them longer to say, oh, right, you can pay him off for $250,000, which to me was a huge amount of money. But Joe was really struggling in the witness protection program. So hopefully I made his last years a little easier. When you were uh, learning about the um, outfit, doing your uh, research uh, early on in the case, is a little bit, you know, before your time, but did you uh, come across any information about Sam Giancana and the, and the Kennedys? And I mean, when we talk about the Chicago outfit, obviously we think of Al Capone, but then later on we think about Giancana. He was a, a another larger than life figure connected to the Kennedys. Did that ever come across your radar? Um, only through what Joe said to me. Uh, and so I wrote a book another book, a second book, with Sam Giancana's grandniece. Her name is Bettina Giancana. And we collaborated uh, on a book. Um, so I meet her like 30 years after. Um, I'm introduced to her by an agent, uh, like a talent agent, <laughs> like an FBI agent. And uh, she and I collaborated on a book about the outfit. What about the, um, tell us about um, uh, the, the book that you, um, uh, A Gun in My Gucci and, and uh, your website and, and tell the audience how they can find that and, um, you know, about your current projects. Huh, okay. So my gun is on, my gun and my Gucci is on Amazon. I really had no, okay, someone that reviewed and um, corrected my book. Uh, gave me the name for a gun in my Gucci. Uh, and I've always thought it was sort of silly because I've always thought it would be silly to carry a gun in, the, in a purse. If you ever get in a fight, what's the first thing that would go would be a purse. Uh, you go down the subway in Chicago, what's going to get snatched from you? Your purse with your gun. How stupid is that? So but it's I a never great title. Cared. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And because I was known for, um, before, I, I, I was raised in a, in a setting that was sort of affluent, and they were not accustomed to women wearing sort of designer suits and um, dressing up um, uh, and getting my hair done at nice salons and, and things like that. So I was a, a blip on the screen of FBI, female FBI agents uh, at that true, time. True, true unicorn. Yeah, yeah, really, true unicorn. Something to be very proud of. You, oh. you, you, paved, you paved the way. Oh, thanks. Yes. Paved the way for, for a lot of uh, major things in, in your career, uh, both oh, thank you. as a female agent and just as an agent for, for the groundbreaking work that, that you did. And I, I say this uh, in all sincerity, uh, for someone that ha has studied family secrets and wrote a book about family secrets, um, there would be no family secrets. And this is not coming from me. This is coming from uh, Jim Wagner, Jack O'Rourke, Tom Bourgeois, uh, <laughs> all the guys that I work all with. All the boys, yeah. That, that helped me uh, uh, craft my manuscript for Family Affair. Uh, there would be no family secrets case. Nick Calabrese turning informant would not have happened if uh, Elaine hadn't done what she did. Uh, with with the Ken Tokyo Joe Ito case, um, it it was a, a it was a trailblazing accomplishment and, and something that you should take a lot of pride in. Oh, thank you very much. Very thank you very much. There, are, yeah. no one really has ever said that to me. Oh so. well, thank you. I'm thank you I very much. Yes. Feel that boy, <laughs> but it's yeah, true. Thank you. Yeah, we I think I'm happy now. <laughs> yeah, we pay homage to to the people that we we uh, I mean people like Jimmy uh, and Jimmy and I. You know we. Uh, we're historians and we chronicle important people from, from history and, 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 and want to make sure that the world knows uh, those accomplishments. So uh, it, it makes us, you know, it gives us a special glow in our hearts to know that, you know, that, that it resonates with you. Well, oh, thank you. Elaine, I teach, yeah. um, I teach our criminology courses and, uh, and, and in some cases, uh, some of my female students uh, want to go into federal law enforcement so I'll make sure that they watch this episode and uh, I think you'll be a, a real inspiration for them. So thank so you. I hope so. I hope so. There's a place for everybody. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much. Thank well, you guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming thanks on. For Elaine. And uh, tell Tom, thank you. And oh, um, yeah. uh, our listeners uh, go out and buy Elaine's book. If you want to find out more about the Chicago outfit, uh, make sure you check us out on Twitter. Make sure you check us out on Facebook and Elaine, hopefully we'll have you we'll have you back on again sometime. My pleasure. Yeah, My thank, you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Elaine.